listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. pretty good theology from those kids. I feel like I could just send y'all out of here with a benediction, (laughs) but I've got to earn my keep. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 12, looking at these first 12 verses. Uh, So hopefully you're already there, but here's the question I want to begin with this morning. How do you determine the worth of someone? How do you determine the worth of someone? Anybody help me out. Character? Yeah, what else? Status. Someone told me this morning they said good looks. Some of you are like, ooh, let me stick with let me stick with character. Because <laughs> God made them. There we go. What else? How else do you determine the worth of someone? Oftentimes, we determine the worth of someone based on how much money they make, success, status. I think about football players, right? And we, we often compare, uh, I, I love watching football, and so we had the Super Bowl this past week. And so if, if you think about football players, though, oftentimes the conversation goes to, man, those guys are overpaid, right? And, and then you watch a game, and you're like, he's making that many millions of dollars and he couldn't catch that ball? Man, what in the world? But can I tell you, the only thing that you can bring to that conversation is the observation that he missed the ball. Because it's not up to you to determine that player's worth. It's up to the owner. It's up to the GM. It's up to somebody else completely. It's up to the person who is willing to pay for that football player. I saw an advertisement. Somebody told me about an advertisement this past week looking for policemen here in Henry County. And the starting pay was significantly lower than what the average income is here in Henry County. And my thought is, man, go get a job doing something else. And that's why it's so difficult to find police. That's why people are quitting. I had somebody else, they said, man, all of my employees are going to other jobs because they're getting these signing bonuses and they're getting $30,000 a year extra pay raises on top of what I can pay them here to do the same exact job. They're like, man, within four years, they're making what they would have made here in, in like 10 years. And so we can determine the worth of folks sometimes based on what they do, their performance, what they look like, how significant they think we think they are, right? We, we assign these, these numbers and maybe this, this status to different folks. Here's my second question this morning. Where do you go for significance? Skill? Yeah, what else? Intelligence. Other people. What else? Maybe you run to good looks. Maybe you run to status or success. What else? Obedience. Obedience. Yeah. Social media. Social media. Ethics. Ethics. 
consider that for a moment, where you go for significance or where you go maybe for safety or for value or to find your worth or to find acceptance. If you look back at the past week, what would that week look like? Maybe you try to find that in your spouse, in your kids, with your boss. Here's what I want us to see this morning. This, this definition of the fear of man is going to be up on the screen. The fear of man is this. It's being afraid of or in awe of. It's being controlled by or needing someone more than God. Being afraid or in awe of, being controlled by, or needing someone more than God. I could go back and say, where do you find your significance? You could say, oh, it's only in God. It's, it's because God created me, and that's the only place. And, and theologically, we can stay there, and hopefully that's true. But oftentimes, functionally, that theology doesn't really line up with what we believe, with what we say we believe, Right? Because sometimes you're trying to turn right, or in my case this past week, I was trying to turn left out of my kid's school, and I couldn't do it. And the people behind me were getting upset, right? And at that moment, what am I thinking? Man, my significance is in God. So whenever I turn left, I don't have to worry about the opinion of the people behind me. Is that what I was thinking? No. Like, I got to get out of here. Because the people, I don't even know their names. I don't, I don't know. It, you know, and part of me wants to put my truck in reverse and... I mean, you know, that's just the sinful side. But no, in that moment, functionally, theologically, these two things are not lining up. Because I'm afraid of, I'm being controlled by the person behind me. You see, above every single one of our lives, there is a throne. And on that throne is the word Lord. There is someone or something that we worship. And when someone besides Jesus Christ is sitting on that throne... We are experiencing the fear of man. And that can change. That can vacillate from moment to moment, second to second, minute to minute, day to day, week to week. Functionally and theologically, we must figure out how to become aligned in how we live. We call this the process of sanctification. And I would define sanctification as this. This is not on the screen. It's the narrowing of the gap between the head and the heart. What I know to be true in my mind, theologically, and what I believe to be true, how I am acting and functioning, we want to narrow that gap to become more and more like Christ. What is the most important relationship in your life? Here are 10 questions, and we'll see this in the passage, but in verse number one, Jesus uses this word, beware. He says, beware of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. It's leaven. And that word literally, beware, as you can imagine, it means to be aware. So here are 10 questions. Uh, I took some of these from a guy named Ed Welch, and he talked about the fear of man. And I want us to, to, to answer these just briefly. If you'll take a picture by the time they get to the end, that's fine. But I want to go through these 10 questions because maybe sometimes we're like, man, I don't, I don't really fear. I don't fear man. I don't. And maybe some of y'all are like, man, that is where I live. My life is in fearing man, fearing the opinions of others. But here are 10 questions to help us. The first five are up here. Um, do you struggle with peer pressure? In older people, we call this people-pleasing. <laughs> older people being adults. Recently, this is what 
psychologists call codependency. Secondly, are you an overcommitted people pleaser? If you watch television at all, commercials are designed to teach you, man, you need to please other people by what you wear, by the way you look, by what you drive, by what you do, by where you live, by how you live. Thirdly, has serving turned into sinning because you are unable to say no? Is self-esteem a critical concern for you? And I just, I'm just so concerned and worried about what other people are going to look at me and say or do. What are they going to do with me? Are embarrassment or shyness common for you? Now, some of you are like, whoa, whoa I didn't know embarrassment or shyness is a sin. I'm not saying it's a sin. Most of these things up here are not sins. But when we're constantly running there, what is the heart? What's the motivation behind that embarrassment? I mean, I don't, it, my worth, my value, my significance is now in the hands of this other person. What if I say the wrong thing, look the wrong way? So I'm not saying everybody has to be an extrovert. Not everybody has to be a three on the Enneagram. But what is the motivation of that? Do you remember the first day of school? Anybody remember going to the first day? I remember my first day of, uh, we just moved back from Africa, and uh, I was actually going to 10th grade at Elka. And my very first day of school, I remember I had a huge zit right here on my nose. I mean, enormous. Like, this is the ones that they like, have you know, in, in textbooks or something. You know, it's the one like Dr. Pimple Popper, whatever that is, pusher, I don't know. Um, it's like where they, they squeeze it, and it's like, you know, a liter. Of, like, it was huge. And I thought, man, I'm never going to have any friends at this school. And I didn't. So, <laughs> but it wasn't because of that. Some personality? I don't know. I forget what they called it. The next question is this. Do you second-guess decisions based on what other people think? The fear of man, fear in and of itself, is asking the question, what are you going to do with me? Putting yourself out there. By the way you look, by what you say, by what you do, what are you going to do with me? When I tell you, man, this is what I do for a living, what are you going to say about that? What are your preconceived notions of me? How is that going to affect the way you treat me? The next question, do other people often make you depressed, angry, or drive you crazy? And if they don't, let me know how. <laughs> because maybe people are too big of a deal. The next question, do you avoid people? Because maybe they're just emotionally too expensive. Somebody asked me this week, hey, how was this meeting that you had? I said, man, it was emotionally expensive. <laughs> they said, okay. Like, I don't want to talk about that anymore. I was hoping you were just going to say, fine. <laughs> the ninth question, do you take too much responsibility for others? In other words, maybe you think that you're their savior. Lastly, are you committed to being nice, making peace, and avoiding conflict? And I had this conversation with, uh, with a guy this past week, a really good friend, and, and he said when he walks into a room, he's scanning the room to see who has a scowl on their face. Now, he does this mostly subconsciously, but that's because he wants to go up and address that person to make sure that person's not mad at him. For me, I want to find somebody who's got a smile on their face because I assume that smile is for me. And so I want to find the happy people and say, hey, man, you're smiling. Can you smile at me too? Do I make you happy? And as soon as you don't, boom, I'm gone. Let me go find somebody else. This brother, they walk into a room and, I mean, is, is everybody okay with me? Are you okay with me? 
We constantly scan a room when you first walk in for safety, for security, for significance. So I ask these questions to say, man, are, are we consumed with or is this even creeping into our lives? Psalm 119, repeat this after me and then we'll open up and look at Luke chapter 12. This is our prayer this morning. Repeat this after me. Open my eyes that I might receive God's wonderful word for me. Amen. So Luke chapter 12, hopefully you have your Bible, you can go there with me. Luke chapter 12, he begins, and we're going to see how we can overcome the fear of man. There are four ways. The first way that we talk about here in these first three verses is that we can overcome the fear of man by living for judgment day. Notice what he says. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say this. Now, notice, I would think, man, a mega church pastor, <laughs> nothing feeds the fear of man like people coming to hear you talk. So here, Jesus has got this, these thousands of people. So you would imagine if he would love this, he's going to turn to his disciples and begin speaking. His greatest concern is not for the fear of others, but it's to do what God the Father has told him to do. I imagine it says here that they're, the crowds are so large, they're trampling one another. It's like a, a Black Friday sale at Walmart, right? This is like 4 a.m., and they've got two televisions on sale for $78, and you've got 4,000 people standing outside. That's what it's like. So they begin trampling one another. This is pretty wild. Jesus is a really big deal. And notice what he does. He, he turns to his disciples first. He turns to his disciples. He's not worried about the crowds. He's like, I'm not worried about all y'all. He turns to his disciples. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So we see here this hypocrisy is compared to leaven. And we're going to talk about that in just a second, but hypocrisy is literally an actor who is changing masks. It is someone who is living a double life. This is the heart of the Pharisee's sin. The external man, the external actions do not match up with the internal reality of what's happening. And Jesus says here, this hypocrisy is like leaven in your heart. Now, if you're familiar with leaven, you know that one of these loaves right here had leaven in it when it was made yesterday. I didn't make this. Kristen Avery did, so give her a high five. But one of them was made with leaven, and one of them was made without leaven. You see that? You can see the difference on the camera. Y'all can probably see that even. If you see this loaf here, this feels terrible. <laughs> this one looks real nice. This one has probably tons of leaven in it, I guess. I don't know how much you need. That's why I asked Kristen to make it. I have no idea. But when you look at these two loaves, you can tell, man, this one looks really good, but the reason it looks so good is because it's full of leaven. And if I were to cut this open, which, huh, I've got a giant knife right here, so we can. If we were to cut this open, we can even see that the inside is beautiful. We can see the effects, hopefully, maybe. Aren't you supposed to turn it on its side? There you go. That's what they taught me in culinary school, not seminary. But if you look here at the inside of that loaf, you can see that it is, man, look at all those air pockets. It's beautiful. That's because leaven was there, and it, it made it puff up. It made it get huge. 
But notice here, we're like, man, that's beautiful. I love leaven. Man, I love hypocrisy. That's, that's awesome. I, I, like your, I like your analogy here. A plus, let's, let's pray for some more hypocrisy and go home. But notice what Jesus says. He says, a little leaven leavens what? The whole lump. It just took a little bit of yeast, a little bit of leaven to make that bread explode as opposed to this, nothing in it, completely flat. Notice here we see yeast. It works slowly. It works silently. It works secretly. And eventually it fills all of who we are. And it makes us look completely different than the way we were created to be. This is the fear of man in our lives. We don't really notice that it's working. And then we turn around and we're like, man, that's all I'm living for. It's to find my significance and worth in what other people say about me. I'm in awe of someone else. All I'm consumed with and concerned with is what my boss says, what my spouse says, what somebody that I've never even met says about me. And this is what we've become. And here's what's crazy. Jesus is talking here to the Pharisees, and this yeast, it spreads. This religious charade, it spreads throughout the church. And I was concerned even as I was reading this passage and studying these verses this week, and I thought, man, in our church, where is this religious hypocrisy spreading? Because I don't want this to be us. On the outside, man, we look good, and we look successful, and we look obedient, and we look religious, and we show up here every single week, and we give the money that we're supposed to give, and we're part of a life, we're part of a DNA group, but on the inside, the only reason we're doing those things is so somebody would come along and pat us on the back and say, good job, because we've put other people on the throne of our lives. We've given them the title of Lord. Now, is anything wrong with those things? Absolutely not. Those things are commanded by Scripture. Those things are expected of the partners here at South Point. But what is your heart's motivation in that? Is it for the glory of someone else? Or is it for the glory of your creator? He says here, a little leaven. Leaven's the whole lump. And all throughout scripture, sin is symbolized by leaven. It infiltrates, it pervades our lives. This is on the screen. We know that we have been overcome, that we've been affected by the yeast of hypocrisy. When we pretend to be holier than we really are, when we establish our own rules, when we are, are, are unwilling to confess our sin, by the way, when I think about our church, that's where I'm like, man, I feel like this may be us because we want to look so good in front of each other and in front of the world and are comfortable with private sins as long as they stay in the dark, either ours or someone else's. And so friends, be careful, beware, be aware. Notice what Jesus says is going to happen. Verse number two, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. I think back to Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember, they sin, they take a bite of that fruit, and as soon as they do, they're like, man, we, we feel shame. I feel terrible. What do they want to do? They go cover up with fig leaves, with something that's not going to keep them covered very long, and it's probably not very comfortable. We can't cover up our own sin with even more sin. We can't cover our own shame with our own efforts. 
When we're doing that, we're denying the power and the efficacy of Jesus Christ's provision for us on the cross. And that's why God the Father, he said, let me take the skin of an animal there in Genesis chapter 3, and I'm going to cover you with that. All throughout the Old Testament, let me take the blood of an animal and cover your sin with this. And eventually we get to Jesus, the Passover lamb, whose life is shed, whose blood is poured out for us. And he says, you can't cover yourself, so stop trying. I'm going to take your, your sin. I'm going to take your shame. And I'm going to cover that with my blood, with my body that's broken and poured out for you. He says, so the things that are going to be revealed, that's okay. They're going to be revealed regardless. What are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that sin and that shame? Are you going to run to the cross with it? Or are you going to run and hide with it again? Nothing that's covered up is, going to, is not going to be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, verse number three, whatever you have said in the dark, who's Jesus speaking to here? He's not speaking to the crowds. He's not speaking to the masses. He's not speaking to the Pharisees. He's not speaking to the hypocrites. He's not speaking to the Sadducees, to the Roman guard. He's talking to here the disciples, those who are with Jesus, those who would call themselves spiritual, those who know the law, those who know the scriptures, those who are walking around. They've seen his miracles. And he says to them, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Friends, what you say and what you do, you will be held accountable for that in heaven. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians. I think it's in chapter 7. He talks about how what we do is we're going to be held accountable for that. It's going to be there on the judgment day. It's going to be this giant screen. It's almost, I imagine it's going to be like a split screen. And, and here is what people saw of our lives. And here is what our lives look like in private. By the way, Jesus currently already knows what both of these things look like. And if both of those things line up, then yeah, we have integrity. But friends, it's going to be shown to us, and Jesus knows those things. Nothing's going to be hidden. He's speaking here to disciples. The fear of God's judgment. So we see here, how do we, do we overcome the fear of man by living for judgment day? So I would say live for that day. The fear of God's judgment is a key to never experiencing God's judgment. You're like, okay, I thought we weren't supposed to be afraid of God. Is this the word fear, like worship or awe, or something like a little more spiritual than fear? It's actually not. Here in the Greek, if you look at this, is actually the fear that a child has for their father, of disappointing their father. That's what it has. That's literally what that means. And we'll talk about that in a second, but notice what Proverbs 9 says. It says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse number 13. It says, the end of the, this is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And then Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13, it says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So don't live for the fear of man. We overcome the fear of man by living for the day of judgment. Secondly, we get down to verse number four. We overcome the fear of man by being willing to suffer. Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. Now, he, I think he's literally speaking to the disciples here because almost all the disciples are going to become martyred. So he says, don't worry about those who can literally physically kill your body. This, this temporary pain 
uh, is terrible, but it's nothing compared to the agony of the separation of God in hell. He's saying, so that is way more to be feared. Now, in our therapeutic, moralistic, you know, deistic age, we don't want to talk about hell, damnation, fire, and brimstone. You're like, ah, we don't, we don't, let's, let's shy away from these things. But what does Jesus say? He says, don't worry about the one who can kill the body. And after that, they have nothing more to do with them. Verse 5, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed, talking about after this, after this man has killed, has authority to cast him into hell. Be worried about God. Fear him. Yes, I tell you, if I wasn't plain enough, fear him. We don't want to talk about these things. We don't want to talk about death. We don't want to talk about uh, the afterlife, the potential of, of hell. We don't want to talk about eternal torment. Because in our minds, the greatest pain that we can go through is that death. Like we, we want to avoid that at all costs. I went to the gym yesterday to avoid death, right? Like I want to keep my heart pumping as long as possible. You're like, yeah, man, you should probably go more than once a day. I'm like, I know, I know I should. Like I get that. But I want to avoid death because in our temporary minds, death is as bad as it gets. But can I tell you, friends, that there is something even worse than death, and it's eternal separation from God. The threat of death is not the greatest threat in this life. The threat of pain, the threat of suffering is not the greatest threat in this life. Because even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of death, you can still know God. We can still have God. So we overcome the fear of man by being willing to suffer, even to the point of death. Don't worry about what somebody can do to this body. Fear the one who is in charge of your eternal soul. Thirdly, not only do we overcome the fear of man by living for the judgment day, not only do we overcome the fear of man by being willing to suffer, but we overcome the fear of man with the love of God. We get down to verse number six. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. For some of y'all, Jesus has to keep changing that number. For some of y'all, it's really easy to... <laughs> Fear not. You are of more value than even many sparrows. Now, notice here, he's talking again about value, worth, significance. He's saying, here's the scale. These sparrows are worth these two pennies. He's saying, what is your life worth? But herein, friends, listen. You're like, okay, so we're supposed to be afraid of God. I thought we were welcomed into his, I thought he was father. But herein lies the tension, okay? Notice the tension that we have here because at the end of verse number five, he says, yes, I tell you, fear him. And then in verse number seven, he says, fear not. So what do we do with this tension here? What do we do with this fear that we're supposed to have? The exact same word that we see right here in verse number seven, we're supposed to fear in this way. But here's what I want us to see first and foremost. As he's talking about value here, our, va our value is determined by the one who created us, by the one who owns us, by the one who has a plan for us. He, God is not like us sitting in our, uh, in our living room watching the, the television, watching the football player, watching someone else saying, yeah, I think that person's worth that. Uh, no, no, he's the owner. <laughs> he's the GM. He's the, he's the head coach. He's all that. He's saying, here is the worth that I've placed on you. And our worth, based on the scripture, is found in the Imago Dei. We are created in the image of God. 
There's nothing on earth that's as valuable as we are. We are created in his image. We've been given the very breath of God. And then when we rejected that, it cost God the Father his son. That's how valuable he thinks of us. He says, yeah, you're worth way more than a few sparrows. I had to send my son to die for you. That's how valuable you are in my sight. We can't look to other people to find a worth greater than that, a significance greater than that, a glory greater than that. We have to look to the cross. We have to look to the cross. That's where the fear of judgment and the fear of the love of God meet. Our significance and safety are most clearly seen at the cross. That's where all of our sin and shame was placed on Jesus Christ. He took it from us. He became sin for us. He was forsaken by the Father so that we could be accepted. You see, Jesus Christ was rejected so that we don't have to fear the judgment of God anymore. Jesus took the wrath of God on himself. So therefore, he can say, fear not. Fear not. If we're looking forward to the judgment day, we're scared. Man, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I've been looking for my significance and all these things. I hope something works out. I don't know. He says, no, no, no. I've placed a value on you, and I've declared you worthy because of the sacrifice of my son. Do not fear. We were able to experience the love of God at the cross, and we are able to love God because of the cross it is at the cross alone that we are fully known and fully loved. You're fully known and you're fully loved. I would say our greatest fear, and this would be true for those people that we haven't even met, people sitting behind me in the car line. This would be true in our homes. Now, I experienced this. <laughs> I, I want to tell my wife something, or I want to tell a brother or sister, somebody, I want to tell you something, but I'm like, man, if, if I'm fully known, you're going to be like, Ugh, what are you going to do with me? You're not going to fully love me. On the other side, the only reason I assume that my wife fully loves me is because she doesn't fully know me, right? We have to keep a little bit of this here to ourselves. But friends, at the cross, we are fully known by God in all of our sin. He knows all of our thoughts, all of our struggles, all of our temptations, all of the ways that we look at that woman, all of the ways that we spend time on our phone, all of the ways that we're materialistic, all of our wanderings, all of our faults, all of our failures, all of our missing the marks since we were a child until we die. We're fully known, and yet we're fully loved. How would that reality have affected this last week for us? In your life, consider being fully known and fully loved by God. How would that have affected the way that you spent your time, that you spent your money? How would that have affected your phone habits? How would that have affected the way that you do your job? You are fully known and you are fully loved in Christ and in him alone, nowhere else. 
And I would ask you, even if you look at this upcoming week, how would being fully known and fully loved by God, how would that affect the different relationships in your life with your spouse? How would that affect your relationship with your boss? Knowing that you don't have to earn his favor and do a good job because he holds your significance in, your, in his hand, but your significance is found in Christ. And even if you get fired from your job, if you're doing the best that you can, that you're working for Christ, your greatest boss, man, that's okay. Your significance is found in Christ alone, and he has a good plan for your life. I think it would lead us to be open and to be honest with our sin, to be open and honest about our hypocrisy, to say, man, I'm filled up with this. It would lead us to boldness and evangelism. Man, what if they, what if they ask me a question I don't know? Who cares if you fail, man? We've got the cross. We have the cross because you are a failure. There's no reason to fear failure. You're already there. You're already a loser. You don't have all the answers. Yet Jesus says, you are significant to me. You were lost and now you're found. You were blind, but now you see. He is the one who speaks worth and love over us. How would that affect our lives this week? How would that affect our homes? If we weren't, living sacrificially, sacrificing our time just so our spouse would sacrifice their time for us. Hey, baby, you me rub your feet for you? God, I'm hoping she, hoping she, you know, responds with the same favor. That'd be real nice. I said this a couple of times, but what if I was up here able to preach without wondering, man, what's that person thinking? Why is that person falling asleep? <laughs> you know, why aren't they laughing at more of my jokes? Instead of, my significance is found in the Father, not in y'all. Now I'm able to live sacrificially. I'm able to be poured out for you. I'm able to put the glory of Christ on display in my failure and in my victory. It's all about Jesus. On the cross, we are fully known and we are fully loved. We overcome the fear of man by understanding the love of Jesus for us. Verse number eight, he finishes the passage with this. We overcome the fear of man ultimately, friends, with the fear of God. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges who before them? Jesus. Everyone who acknowledges Jesus. And here, Christ is assuming and presuming his deity. Just so you know, people are like, ah, I don't know if Jesus ever, uh, if he ever says, hey, I'm one with God. No. And this is actually a real picture, by the way. I'm just kidding. I don't think it's accurate. I saw some people snickering about it. I know, man. It's just, I don't know, I don't know where else to get these pictures, okay? So I do the best I can. Please, please be happy with me. <laughs> Jesus here presumes his deity. He says, if you must acknowledge me before men, and the Son of Man will acknowledge you before the Father. Jesus is saying, I'm standing right here. I'm the mediator between man and God. I am fully God and fully man. You must come through me. You must acknowledge me. That's it. I'm the only way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There's nobody else. No other way to get to heaven. Verse number nine. He says, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. 
A lot of churches teach that eventually all religions get to Jesus and we're just one of these many options. A lot of Christian churches, a lot of what we would call evangelical churches. Can I tell you this morning, friends, that Jesus is the only way to heaven. He's not one of the many options. Why should we fear a God who's going to love everyone conditionally anyway? He says here, I'm the only way. Verse number 10 and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. And this is a crazy verse. I'm out of time. I guess we can't cover it. Okay. Uh, who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Here's what that literally means. It means someone, because we're saying, ah, man, what's the, what's the unpardonable sin? What's the unforgivable sin? We don't know what that is. Here's what that means. The Holy Spirit reveals Jesus Christ to us. The Spirit declares the power and the work and the character and the nature of Jesus Christ. And if we are persistent to deny the Holy Spirit's claim of who Jesus Christ is, we cannot be forgiven. That's what he's talking about here. You go back to the beginning of chapter 11. Uh, Jesus is casting out demons. And what do the Pharisees come and do? Those hypocrites, they come and say, man, this power that Jesus has, it can't be by the power of God. It's got to be because of the power of Beelzebul. What are they denying? They're denying the authority and the deity of Jesus. So he's saying here, you can't do that. Don't deny the word of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit who says Jesus is who he says he is. Verse 11. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. In other words, the Spirit is going to give us words to speak if we are brought before those who are going to accuse us in the days of our trial. And, and friends, I can, I can look at the news and I can pontificate about when that might be. It might be sooner than later. I don't know. You can look at the news around the world and and see that I feel like that day is coming a little more quickly than it was a year ago. We're one step closer to it. My kids are one step closer to it. Your grandkids are one step closer to it. But we see here the power of the Spirit is sufficient to give us words to speak. And I would say that's even true in the rest of our lives. We are able to speak the words that the Spirit would have us to speak when we are safe in Jesus, no matter what those words are. And so if you see sin in my life or in someone else's life, understand that you are safe in Jesus. Man, call that sin out in love for that brother, in being consumed with the power of the Spirit. Encourage your brother or your sister, your friend, your wife. Be an encouragement. Let the Spirit flow through you because it doesn't matter what they do with your words. Your significance is not found in how they respond to you. Your significance, your worth, your value is not found in what they say about that. It's found in Christ and him alone. What a glorious, as I, as I look at these, these last few verses right here, I think what a glorious moment when we are before the throne of God. And Jesus looks at us and he says, that one, she's mine. I confess her before you, the Father, and all the angels. Him, he's mine. I confess him before God, the Father, and all the angels. You, you are mine. What a beautiful picture we have here. This is our aim. This is our goal. We don't have to look forward to the day of judgment with fear when we understand that Jesus took our fear. He took it on him bodily, physically, he took the wrath of God on himself. He became sin for us. 
He knew no sin. He became our sin so that we could become his righteousness. He took our physical and spiritual death into the grave where he was buried for three days. And then he rose victorious. I think about the old hymn, because he lives, I can do what? Face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is what? It's gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth a living just because I know he lives. Jesus Christ is victorious. And so like we saw in verse number seven, he says, fear not. If you are in me, if your faith is in my finished work on the cross, if your faith and your trust is in my life, I am victorious. And right now I'm interceding for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This will be up on the screen if you want to read it from there. But 1 Corinthians 5, it says this in verses 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Well, yeah, we do. We see it right here. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We are both fully known and fully loved by Jesus Christ. He fully experienced our sin. We're fully known. He fully became our sin. We are fully known. He took that on himself. He paid the price so that we could be fully loved. We take our hypocrisy, we take our fear of man, we take our sinfulness, our sinful flesh that looks so good on the outside so often, we take it as it has filled us up. He takes that from us and he offers himself as an unleavened piece of bread. He says, take my sinlessness, take my righteousness. Your identity is no longer found in sin, your identity is found in me. And friend, you can receive that this morning by turning from your sin in repentance and turning to Jesus Christ in faith. Anybody in here struggle with the fear of man? Yeah. Your significance, your worth, your value has been given to you by God, the Father. It's been confirmed in Jesus Christ in his death. Believe that. Receive that. Live in that. Rejoice in that this morning. We remember that in this meal that's called communion. He says here, he talks about this feast. He's talking about communion. It's where we take bread. It represents the broken body of Jesus Christ. It had to be broken because we're sinners. He says, here's my body. Take, eat all of it. We're given the juice. We dip this bread in this juice to represent his blood, which is representative of his shed blood that covers us. So now when God looks at us, the Father, he does not see dirty, filthy Michael Powell or fill in your name. He doesn't say, man, I hope you can find your significance or your worth somewhere. He says, no, I'm placing this on you. 
Your worth, your value, your significance is in being mine. It's in being righteous. It's in being in Christ. So friends, we remember the sacrifice, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ, his mediation even right now for us. We repent yet again of our sin. You're like, man, how many times are we going to talk about confessing and repenting of sin? The fear, Man, again, we'll talk about it again. And guess what we're going to do next week if Judgment Day isn't here? We'll probably talk about it again. Me or somebody else, we'll talk about it again. Because we want to keep pursuing God. We want to keep pursuing in the midst of whatever is happening in life. The presence and the essence of God. We were able to access that because of the finished work of Jesus. So friends, repent of your sin. Remember what Christ has done and rejoice that we are his. Fear not. This is a family meal for all of those who are in Christ, who have declared like these kids did this morning, that Jesus Christ is their only hope in life or in death. Their faith is in him. If your faith and your trust, you're just like, man, I can't, I can't go there. I haven't put my faith fully in, in him yet. Then just hang out in your seat. If you're like, man, I want to take that first step of faith. Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. The Spirit is drawing me to him. Man, this meal is for you. If you've been on this path for decades, you're like, man, yeah, yeah, I'm pursuing the glory of God. And in the midst of his glory shining on me, he's revealing sin in my life. Man, this meal is for you. Repent of that sin. Rejoice. Fear not. Family, you're invited to join me at this time of communion.